Welcome back, folks, to another installment of Force Ghost Coast to Coast. This is episode four, a new version. My name is Brian Salvatore, and I will be your host through this conversation of all things Star Wars. Force Ghost Coast to Coast is a Multiversity Comics production. Please visit multiversitycomics.com for all of your comics needs. We were down for a little bit last week, but we are back and better than ever. Or something. (laughs) We're getting ready to do some special things on the site, so keep your eyes peeled to Multiversity Comics. Today's episode is all about Star Wars in its non-original incarnations. So that means things like the TV shows that spun out of it or the special editions, or the man himself who keeps tinkering with them, Mr. George Lucas. I have uh, two things I want to talk about before we get started today. Uh, One of my earliest Star Wars memories is involving the Ewoks film. I'm not sure which one. Um, I remember, though, I was in uh, the house that I was born in, which I moved out of in kindergarten, and my parents and I were watching an Ewoks movie, and I was eating Chinese food. And I don't know if I had some bad food or I had a stomach bug, but I wound up uh, how can I delicately say this? Uh, not keeping it down. Let's put it that way. I threw up all over the floor. And for about 10 years, I did not eat Chinese food. And uh, so from like 5 to 15 or so, I didn't touch Chinese food because I was so scarred by watching the Ewoks movie. Uh, since then, I've gone back and rewatched those Ewoks films, and maybe it was the quality of the film that had something to do with my uh, stomach issues, we'll say, for that day. But the other thing I wanted to talk about was another TV-related property. I just, last month for the first time, watched the Star Wars Holiday Special. You know, I've obviously heard about it for years and years. And uh, through the magic of YouTube, you can now watch it. And I had heard it was bad. I had never heard it was this boring. Oh my goodness, was it boring. There were some really, really dumb parts. But more than anything else, it was just dull. And I don't like my Star Wars dull. I don't know about you guys. But anyway, I'm going to be on two of the three conversations that happen this episode, so you're going to hear plenty of me, so let me cut this short. We're going to start off by talking about the man himself, the man who created Star Wars, Mr. George Lucas. And to join me on this is my friend Matt Garcia. the structure of the episodes and all that so there's not a natural place to talk about lucas because he kind of touched everything so i guess we're going to start just by talking about maybe lucas's early inspirations and sort of how he crafted star wars so matt what is like your if you had to identify one influence as the predominant influence for Star Wars. You know, he's mentioned there's lots of stuff. There's Kurosawa, there's old serials, there's, you know, there's lots of different places that he drew inspiration from. But where would you say is, like, the most obvious point of influence for Lucas? Uh, I'm actually going to go with, like, the old westerns. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially, like, John Ford westerns and stuff, like the big epic scope things where there was a very clear morality of good and evil. Um... A lot of that, too, I feel kind of influenced the people that f- influenced Lucas. So, like, Akira Kurosawa obviously watched a lot of John Ford movies before he made, like, his things. Um, Seven Samurai was 
the biggest one that Lucas claims, but really it's his hidden fortress that he remade. Um, a lot of those old westerns that I think he was growing up with, too, incorporated a lot of the things that we do see in Star Wars. So you see a lot of, like, battles, and you see a lot of, uh, like, battles with, I guess in the westerns it would have been, like, carriages and horses and stuff. In Star Wars we get spaceships. And a lot of that was adapted after uh, World War One movies, I think, World War Two movies. The Dam Busters, I can't remember mm-hmm. what that one was about. Um, and then just, like, a lot of the background characters are basically Western characters and stuff. Han Solo being a huge example of that. Right, right. Yeah. Um, that's obviously not it, but I think that John Ford's Westerns were really touched on, was a big cornerstone of what Star Wars became and what influenced George Lucas. You know, it's interesting you say that. This is gonna, this is slightly tangential, so I, I'm warning you in advance, but... I was having a conversation with my dad recently, and my dad is the person who instilled my love of film in me, and when he was growing up, he was a huge fan of westerns, and I, you know, there are some westerns that I do enjoy, but I would say overall as a genre, I'm not really a westerns guy, right? And I think part of that is because movies like Star Wars took the, to my eyes, the interesting parts about westerns and did them in space or in with the stakes just so much higher and so much more interesting than just, as you said, horses and carriages. Right. Like, I don't think I was, it wasn't even until I was in college that I could even appreciate the Western for what it was doing Mm -hmm. and like being able to pick it apart and see what like the movies were after and their ambitions. Cause as a kid, I was just like, what the hell is this? This is boring. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um, but there's other things in Star Wars, too. Um, I guess, what do you see that he brought in enormously? Uh, well, you know, I, I, he definitely talks about sort of the uh, the influence of the Old Republic serials. And I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to watch some of those. Oh, but, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, th- th- what, what, what always struck me about them is that there are these, like, sublime moments in them that are so exciting and so well done. But there's also just a lot of boring elements that don't necessarily drive the plot too much but are sort of there because they had to kill 10 minutes for you know however many weeks in a row and so there's lots of detours and lots of little tangential moments that don't add up that much and i actually think that you can see lucas's love for that sort of stuff in the prequels especially because there are lots of tangents in the prequels and there are lots of things that are there's a lot of time spent on topics that have absolutely no import to the rest of the story. Right, they kind of fill out the world. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I see in the world building and the um, the desire to tell a story that isn't just getting from point A to point B, I see a lot of that from the Old Republic serials uh, that Lucas loved so much. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, I think I sought those out because um, George Lucas and Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, were so like open about how much that they had influenced uh, their respective properties. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I had actually just really learned recently that was big for George Lucas was uh, racing. And as his original first career was going to be a uh, like a race car driver kind of thing. Um, so he would skip school and he would go around and like just go to tracks and practice to be a racer. And it wasn't until he got into like this significant accident that it, uh, that he changed his whole career path. And so his 
breakout movie was actually um, American Graffiti with Richard Dreyfuss, Dreyfuss mm-hmm. and that was in 1973. Um, and the young and that, Harrison Ford as well. Yeah, really young Harrison yeah. Ford. Uh, still sexy Harrison Ford. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but you saw a lot of that, I think, a lot of his culture and mentality in that movie. Um, and a lot of that, especially with the race sequences, kind of carry over to Star Wars. And so when you, I learned that and I was watching Star Wars, I was like, oh, this is definitely the mind of somebody who likes to go fast. Because uh, it's a lot of buildup, especially in the very first movie. Mm-hmm. And then after, I think maybe the first hour when they cross into Alderaan's uh, remnants, it just it's just a relentless race back and forth through the through the set pieces and then to the eventual Death Star. It's interesting you mentioned that too because I, I feel like you know as as somebody who I, I guess it's such a stupid thing to say we're all aging at the same rate right but <laughs> as I get older I feel like there are certain parts of my childhood my adolescence things that I loved that I never stopped loving but when you get to a certain age you realize like oh I might like other stuff but this is really what I'm about like I think it's it's it gets easier to crystallize the things that you really love as you get older. And I think if you look at the pod race sequence from episode one, that very much to me reads like race car driver Lucas realizing how much he loves race cars. Yeah, definitely. You know, that so was, that's interesting. That was it. A lot of people like shit on the pod racing thing, but I loved, I loved that. Um, yeah, as a kid, and even now, even if someone pointed out, oh, all he's doing is going from left to right the entire race, but mm-hmm. I'm like, fuck it, that's awesome, I like this. <laughs> See, my problem with the pod race is more that I just felt like the stakes weren't earned in the pod race. So from a storytelling perspective, I feel like it's not great. I think visually it looks pretty cool, and I think there's a lot of, again, like interesting side characters and... You know, it it definitely works as an action scene. I just don't know if if I'm emotionally invested enough in the characters to waste like and waste is a strong word, but to waste one twelfth of the film on that. Oh, I completely understand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's been a long time since I've watched the prequels. <laughs> I just rewatched them in preparation for doing this podcast series, so I just watched them. Yeah, I was listening listening to your discussion about that too, and I was like, mm, the fresh. Uh, take that you have on that is obviously something different than what I would have. And right. I think Phantom Menace going off on a little bit of a tangent there. I saw that when I was in sixth grade. Um, so that kind of stuff was, you know, perfect for a sixth grader. Man, I am so old. All you guys are so much younger than I am. <laughs> oh, um, but anyway, back, back to the topic at hand, uh, George Lucas, um, I guess, one of the biggest, and this is a really, really broad question, but what do you think he did right with the Star Wars movies? Like, the whole thing, the original trilogy, the prequels. What? Well, I, I, I think the biggest thing he did right is hard to attribute to Lucas himself, but <laughs> I think he surrounded himself with perfect collaborators. Uh, you know, obviously some of them he probably had little to do with. I don't know how much of a choice he had and who was going to score the film, right? I don't know if the studio gave him five names and said, pick a name from this list, or if they just said, you know, John Williams is going to score this film. You know, I think by the time that we get to Empire, you know, he probably had more of a say in picking Lawrence Kasdan as his as his co-writer. You right. know, um, I, I think that he, 
he especially with the early films he allowed other people's visions to cohabitate with his own yeah and i think that when you're younger typically you're more headstrong and you have a harder time sharing the spotlight with others lucas didn't have that problem in his youth he was he was an excellent collaborator and you know so many of the good things about the empire strikes back if you if you go back and you read about it aren't necessarily Lucas ideas, but Lucas was willing to give things a shot to try and do things a little bit differently. And I think that is an incredibly successful way to make a film, which is to my eyes, the most collaborative medium that there is. Yeah. No joke. Um, I I agree with a lot of of what you're saying, definitely about the collaboration Mm -hmm. part. And I feel maybe that's probably why, the first Star Wars especially still stands up um, is that he was so willing to like rely on his set designer Mm -hmm. and he was so willing to rely on his director of photography and he was so willing to rely on like John Williams because I actually think he um, like the rumor I think I heard was that Spielberg who had just gotten off uh, Jaws Mm -hmm. right before they went into Star Wars production uh, had recommended John Williams to George Lucas and said, yeah, he just did this. And the 70s filmmaking period was way different than the 2010 filmmaking period, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, we were getting all those, like, really just gritty and raw movies. So you got, like, Assault on Precinct uh, 1, 2, no, Assault on, The Taking of Pelham 1, 1, 2, 3, 3, and the Assault on Precinct 13, Mm -hmm. and, like, Martin Scorsese's came out with, like, Mean Streets and Taxi Driver and stuff. So it was a very auteur-based film environment at the time. And I think being able to work in that environment and bring, like, his fun sensibility to this, uh, he was able to bring in a lot of people that, like, whose work he had seen um, or had experienced in other pieces and help remix it into what Star Wars is. Absolutely. Um, I have another one, but I want to kind of hear yours first. What's something you think Lucas did really well? Uh, I think when you vocalize the idea of the collaborating stuff, that's definitely the biggest thing. Um, there's the reliance on his actors, even like, because there's that famous line where they're like, George Lucas, you can write this, but nobody can really say this shit, right? <laughs> um, because George Lucas, even then, is not was not like a strong writer and he definitely isn't a strong director and i think you can see a lot of that when you compare him to like the stuff spielberg was doing so spielberg released uh, close encounters of the third kind uh, just a couple months after star wars came out and like you compare those two movies together so star wars itself is directed very flat and fast so everything is kind of on an easy per- uh, surface the camera just has very basic moves there's not like any sweeping movements or anything like that it's just very point and get everything in the frame that you possibly can just get the most visual bunch of information that you're able to do um and then you look at like close encounters from just a couple months later and it's just like lights flashing everywhere and great tension building up and people moving in very deliberate ways um but with, like, so I think George Lucas definitely at that time realized his limitations and he sought out people to help 
Goose then. Mm-hmm. And then like we were talking about with Empire Strikes Back, he hired his uh, professor. Um, shoot, just forgot the dude's name. Irving, uh, Irving Kirshner? Irving Kirshner, yeah. Irving Kirshner. Um, he hired Lee Brackett to write the original draft, but then she, I think she died before he could give her notes. Then he brought in Lawrence Kasdan to write uh, the subsequent drafts and stuff. And then um, from everything I've been reading, he actually kind of just said, you guys have this. I'm going to, you, you have my outlines, you know what's going on. Um, so George Lucas, I think, is really great at these ideas, and he can throw these ideas out, and he can take these things that he sees and like just make them work for him. And a young George Lucas, like you had said, was way willing to rely on other people to help bring that out. It's interesting that you say that, because I th- the other thing I wanted to talk about was I feel like one of young Lucas's strengths was his ability to adapt his ideas and to take like okay for instance when when they were making a new hope he didn't know that darth vader was skywalker's father nor did he know that luke and leia were siblings yeah i feel like for most people myself included if i didn't have those details going into that first film i don't know if there could be a way to make those details work but he had this like incredible ability to not just roll with the punches, but to help other people fix his problems in a certain way, you know? And I think that malleability is a really, really underrated skill of those movies. Because when you think about, I don't even think in Empire, when they were making that, that it was totally decided that Leia was Luke's sister, correct? Yeah, I don't think so either, because um, she kissed, was totally making out. She, exactly, she kisses him in the first act, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, you know when you when you when you consider that, like those are the, if you ask people like what's the indelible part of Star Wars, they're going to say the "I am your father" line, and that was you know not originally conceived as part of the story. So yeah, I think that Lucas's ability to adapt was a huge benefit as a young man, and I think it's something you see him struggle with with the prequels. Like I think there's a lot of things that, given given to his 30-year-old self, he would have maybe backed away from that he eventually doubled down on in the prequels. Yeah, that was actually going to be part of where I'm segueing to next. Um, but before we go, like, shitting on the prequels, uh, what do you <laughs> There's think... always time for that. There's always time for that. What What do you think he actually did well in the prequels? Um... Like, just from a filmmaker point of view, because in this one, he took all three movies and he sat and he took the helm for all three movies. Yeah. He wasn't just a producer or just the story guy. He was, he was the guy. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Things he did well in the prequels. (laughs) I, I think that even though he got off to a rocky start, I think that he brought Obi-Wan Kenobi to a good place by the end of them. Like I, I, you know, I grew up watching, the original trilogy, and I feel like Ewan McGregor does an okay Alec Guinness impression, but you really see by the end of episode three how he can become the old man we meet in A New Hope. And I think that's actually the hardest thing that Lucas had to do in those movies was to convince us that those are the same characters, because if that doesn't work, you can't join the two trilogies together. Right. That is the glue of the trilogies. And I think that they, in terms of Obi-Wan's story, he did about as good of a job as you could expect him to do. 
I also think he did a pretty good job in terms of... Well, let me back up. I think one of the things he, he I think one of the things he does is he demystifies and de uh, demythologizes the Jedi to a great degree. Right, it's I, like knowing your heroes kind of thing, right? Yes, yes, and I don't know if that's a good thing, but that's what he wanted to do, and he did it well. Does that make sense? Like, I don't, I don't know if I agree with the storytelling decision, but because he made the decision, he executed that well. Yeah. I agree with that. I know I understand what you're saying, and I definitely can agree with that. Uh, outside of that, I think he handled Palpatine reasonably well, who also is an important bridge between the two trilogies. And I, th- I think you know his Palpatine is, especially in Episode Three, his Palpatine is far better than just by any other character outside of Obi Wan in that film. Um. Yeah. And I think that while I disagree with the visual choices that he made pretty much at every turn in the prequels, I think he did help the world and the universe seem incredibly expansive and huge. I guess that's about all I'm willing to give Lucas credit for. <laughs> uh, what about you? What are some of the things that you appreciate from the from the prequels? Um, I like how he turns some of the conventions on his head. So, like, the Chosen One thing, because they went, they went full fantasy with, like, the prequels. I believe that Star Wars has always been a fantasy, yes. more than a science fiction movie. I wouldn't even put it in science fiction at all. It's just, it's, it's a romance fantasy. Um, and he just doubled down on those things. So we had the whole prophecy thing, um, which is in, like, literally every fantasy. <laughs> yep. Uh, and the whole Chosen One thing. And I like that the chosen one became evil. It wasn't just like the force for good that you would expect it to be. Um, it was like Anakin becoming a mega dick and killing everybody. <laughs> and that, and that did bring balance to the force in a weird way. And like you were saying in your podcast, a couple in your, uh, edition on the prequels a little while back, um, he brought the balance to bring back the Sith and the whole, uh, I guess we can bring in, like, the... Because Asian mysticism was another big thing that he brought in. Right, the right. Yin and yang, uh, ideals, ideas. Um, did he do it well? That's t- tough to say. Like it's at times, Yeah, at times he kind of did it okay. At other times, not really. Um, but I did like that he had those ideas of bringing, like, just ways to invert uh, the conventions. Um, and I do think some of the visual things, like the... Space battles were fun. Um, sure. <laughs> yeah, like like the opening space battle in Sith, Revenge of the Sith. I thought that was fun. Yes. Um, anytime Jake Lloyd wasn't talking in Phantom Menace, I remember being pretty okay with that battle. <laughs> uh, the lightsabers, he definitely kind of doubled down on lightsaber things. Yes. I think the cartoon shows improved that a lot. But, um... His sense of movement, I think, also improved a lot. Um, but that also kind of brings out, I think, his biggest failure of the prequels in not even selling them. Because I think I've made the argument before that like, there's just a lot of stuff, even in the original trilogy, that doesn't really make any sense. Or is kind of like, okay, you, just, you were making that up as you went. <laughs> and like we were talking about with the Luke and Leia and Darth Vader being his father and stuff. Um, 
but I just lost my train of thought. Give me a second. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. No, it's actually, I, I, I kind of want to jump in there for one second with talking yeah. about things that don't make sense. Something just someone pointed out to me recently, I think it was Greg maybe, that in Return of the Jedi, we're led to believe that Luke is on the Death Star when it right before it blows off, right? That, that Luke and Vader and the Emperor are all together on the Death Star. Right. Which means that if the plan to blow up the Death Star had worked, it doesn't matter if Luke and Vader kill the Emperor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it like totally <laughs> renders that scene meaningless. Which I never thought about until very recently. Literally, my mind is going boosh. <laughs> yeah, like it's crazy. Like that's a that's a huge storytelling flaw right there. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never, never, never even crossed my mind. Um, but that's a pretty big revelation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but again, like the way that he and his collaborators back then were able to tell the story. Um. And I think that one too, because that was just like a huge emotional moment for Luke. And since Luke was basically our proxy into the sh- into the movie, into the story, that was a huge emotional moment for us. And it was like something we had been waiting for for like the two hours, right? Uh, you don't see a lot of that in the prequels. <laughs> that that's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I never even got me on that one. <laughs> Well, let, let me share with you my, my other favorite crackpot theory of, of recent uh, days, and then we'll get back to the topic at hand. Right uh, I recently heard, and I mentioned this to Zach, and Zach uh, also heard it and also thinks it's bonkers, that there's a theory out there that Obi-Wan has Owen and Baru killed to convince Luke to come with him to Alderaan. And supposedly the giveaway to this is that when he and Luke go back to the moisture farm and see their bodies, he says uh, these marks are too precise. Only an Imperial stormtrooper can make markings this precise. And yet throughout the movie, all we see is stormtroopers being terrible shots. (laughs) And so he's just exposing the naivete of a farm boy and feeding him lies while actually having orchestrated the death of his family. That's an interesting theory that I don't, know if I agree with. <laughs> no, it, it's kind of a fun thought exercise, but I don't yeah. think it's uh, it's particularly, you know, uh, revelatory or or logical at all. But anyway, that's okay. Well, my thought would be with the stormtroopers, they were just shooting randomly and they burned the house down. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Just a <laughs> <Yeah>. lucky shot. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> um, Alright, oh, uh, back to the storytelling in the prequels. Yes. So, I think... At that stage, George Lucas had gotten really into visual effects. I think he'd actually been really into visual effects as like a way to convey information and communicate that uh, way back, maybe in even Return of, in uh, Empire Strikes Back, um, because a lot of times those take really big front and center. Uh, not even that like the Empire Strikes Back budget was way bigger than Star Wars's, but like the set pieces often involve like the mechanical. Uh, walkers coming in, right? Mm-hmm. Or they involve the uh, Millennium Falcon flying through the asteroid field. Or they involve, like, Luke hanging down out of Bespin and stuff. And so there's, like, a lot of big visual flourishes, and you can see that there's a bigger push for that. Whereas in, like, Star Wars, it's a lot more subdued and in the background, and it feels like everything is just kind of there because it's always there. Um, but I think that that came that obsession really just kind of overtook 
the trilogy, the prequel movies. Um, I think a lot of why, like even in my memory now that I can get through the Phantom Menace a lot better is because he was still building some sets. Mm-hmm. And so all the actors had a place to move and interact on, and they still went to tat- they still went to uh, Tunisia to film the Tatooine scenes. Um, but by the second and third movies, they were doing everything against green screen, and that hollowness and fakery of like two thousand three, two thousand five CG or three D animated effects and it's, live action. It's blending. so noticeable now. Yeah, um, it's just it's really noticeable, and it doesn't sell what we're looking at because it is everything all at once yeah i i agree completely with that um so i guess here's here's my big question for now so I, i think we can all agree especially based on the things we've talked about so far tonight that we feel that lucas lost his way with the prequels we feel that maybe it was it was about uh style over substance that the storytelling took a backseat to the visuals, that the hollowness of the CGI gave way to stories that just didn't feel as human or as lived in or as true, as true as a space opera can feel, you know, uh, as the as the originals. Is there something, and I, I know it's a little bit hard to identify just one thing, but is there something Lucas could have done with the prequels that would have salvaged them for you? Uh, Made it less epic, I think. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Like, again, I'm coming back to some of the things I find really effective in the first Star Wars movie. And, like, the Clone Wars. That's just a throwaway line, you know? That, like... It's, yeah. He's like, you fought in the Clone Wars? And he's like, yeah, 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 whatever. (laughs) And so they mention all these other things. Like, oh, they're on Dattooine. Uh, they're on this other planet. You have this sense that there's this giant world, but literally in Star Wars, there's only three locations. There's like Tatooine, the Death Star, and uh, the Death Star trenches. Yeah. Yeah, but that world just feels big. Same with Empire Strikes Back. You have maybe five locations. You have Hoth, Dagobah, the asteroid field, the worm thingy, and Bespin, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And again, that movie just feels enormous. Um, But the way that they were conveying information, I think back then, and the way they kind of just brought it up as something that the characters experienced was a bigger way to kind of feel that epic scope. Whereas with, like, the prequels, everything had to be shown. Like, there were two-second scenes, like Wes Anderson-esque cutaways to, like, Kashyyyk. Yep. You know? (laughs) We saw Coruscant a lot, and then we saw, like, all these other, like, just locations, and we saw them really fast, and they just didn't hold that same level of intrigue or interest for me. I mean, I agree completely. You know, one of the things my friends and I have joked about in the past is how we are absolutely shocked that at some point in the trilogy, in the prequels, you don't see the Kessel run, or you don't see somebody like timing out a parsec. Oh, because they showed everything else. Right, exactly, and like you know, so like everything that's mentioned is 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 shown except for that, pretty much. You know, and it's just it's it, you know, and this again, I hate that we as a fan base are so drawn to this, but it's the perfect example. Midichlorians 
are just totally unnecessary, and it, it illustrates exactly what you're talking about. Instead of showing us what the Force is, it tells us a boring explanation of what the Force is. Right. It's kind of like Neil deGrasse Tyson just going like, oh yeah, gravity couldn't happen because you couldn't see that spaceship from this other spaceship. Right. It's like, who the fuck cares? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I'm in the middle of this and I'm emotionally invested. I don't need to bring this much logic into a movie. <laughs> exactly. Like, it has to have an internal logic, but whatever. It's a movie. Yeah. Um, I guess the big thing that we can speculate is, what do you think... Well, okay, so I guess the big problems with the prequels came even before that, and the much-derided special editions, mm-hmm. right? And that's one of the things that makes George Lucas such a difficult person, I think, to like. Um, or he makes him... I don't want to say that, because I, I do like George Lucas, and I like listening to him give interviews, and I think everything I've seen of him, he seems like a really nice and chill dude. He seems like a very decent human being. Like, you know, he... He wants to open a museum, and he, you know, he wants to give away a lot of money. He wants to develop low-income housing. You know, he seems like a genuinely good person, right? And so you're like, oh, you, how do I like balance this just like frustration with you when you <laughs> do like really awesome things at the same time? And I think a lot of where, as a fan base, Star Wars like fans started going was with the special editions, and I don't think the special editions would have been or would be received nearly as poorly um, if he had still let the original cuts exist. Absolutely. Like, I agree with a lot of what George Lucas says about artists' rights and stuff, and I have very conflicting thoughts about who a story belongs to. Um, But I think him going so far out of his way to bury his original cuts of those movies um, makes the special editions come out even worse. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. Like, I, I'm somebody who is... Uh, I hate watching video of myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, like every Christmas, Thanksgiving, my family wants to bust out old home movies. And I'd rather like stick needles in my eyes. That sounds like the worst way for me to spend my time. But... I'm also not going around burning the home movies and like showing them the comics I drew about those same t- things. Being like, no, guys, who needs to watch my brother's third birthday party? Here, I made a much better version of his third birthday party. Like, it's exactly. just, it, 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 it doesn't seem like it's productive to me. Um, right. And it also seems like a slippery slope because, you know, I, I'm somebody, I love, love, love music. And I feel like, you know, I can think of a song as a song by uh, Frank Black and the Catholics called New House of the Pope. And you can hear a creaky piano bench. The piano player is on like a bench that creaks. And is that a perfect part of the song? No, it's not. But it gives the song some character. And yeah, it, I definitely agree. And, you know, I, uh, I could definitely see people wanted to pull that out. But to me, that would take away part of the experience of hearing that song. And I feel like some of the things about Star Wars give it character. And the fact that it did have a budget that was limited meant they had to get more creative with certain things. And... If you're going back and you're correcting the creative decisions, then why did you even bother making them in the first place? Definitely. Definitely. Um, some of them I'm okay with. Like, I was okay with them blasting out the, like, fuzzy mats underneath the land speeders. Sure. Um, I mean, like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Whatever. But, like, putting the big, I don't know what they're called, like, the elephant horse yeah. things. Yeah. 
um, in the background, which just looks so 1996 yeah. technology and 1976 technology just don't mesh well together in the ways that he was using them. Yeah, and you know, things like putting Jabba in A New Hope right, and Greedo shooting first, which could be a whole podcast unto itself. Um, actually, no, did you read that? Uh, I sent, there was a yes. post article, and I think... I want to I want to actually elaborate on this one because I think that this does have a lot of what's going through George Lucas's mind now versus what's going through George Lucas's mind then. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so in that article, he was talking about it. Uh, it was like a profile on um, Lucas Washington Today, Post. essentially. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. And uh, he was like, "Well, you know, I was looking at it, and I'm like, well, Han Solo is supposed to be like my cowboy character. He's supposed to be John Wayne, and John Wayne wouldn't shoot first. John Wayne's not a cold blooded killer." But the thing is, like, he basically, with that decision, eliminates Han Solo's character arc for Star Wars. Um, exactly. Because at the beginning of Star Wars, uh, and this is definitely the way he's thinking in 1970, you know, 51976 when he's writing these things, is that Han Solo is a cold-blooded killer who's, like, dropping things and constantly on the run from everybody. He is not someone that you want to trust. But as he you know, grows with Luke and he experiences all these uh, events and situations with like Leia and Luke and everything. Um, he starts to see something bigger than himself. Yeah. It's a redemption of. story. Right. Like that's, that movie is a far more effective redemption story than the entire prequels for Anakin. Absolutely. Plus Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think the George Lucas now, who's kind of afraid of maybe that, honesty or of even letting a character be that despicable uh, is something that just really keeps like any the Star Wars movies from being from being great for at least episode one two and three yeah I'll agree with that um, you know one of the things that I think Lucas gets chided for a lot is his inability to just let things be. And I think the Greedo shooting first is obviously an example of that. Obviously, tinkering with the special effects is part of that. But I also think that, to a certain degree, that speaks to his um, his belief in these stories as being living things. And his belief in, in stories meaning something more than just... Uh, being, you know, the, the, the two hours of entertainment on the screen, I think he really does look at them as as his life's work. And so there's something to me sad about Lucas walking away from the prequels as happy as I am that he did. I mean, not, not from the prequels from the, from the property in general, you know, as happy as I am that he has nothing to do with uh, the force or the force awakens. I feel like there's a little bit of sadness in me though, that he isn't getting the chance to kind of see his creation through to the end. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, um, in that post he has a quote where, in the Washington Post profile, he has a quote where he goes, now I'm faced with the awkward reality of watching the movie, which is fine. I'm quoting him right now. Um, he says it's like going to a wedding and his ex will be there. Yeah, I read that. It was fascinating. Right, and I'm like, that's a really interesting way of approaching this because Disney basically, well, Disney and Kathleen Kennedy um, were just kind of like, yeah, no, no, go away. After his initial, like, outlines that mm -hmm. he delivered. Right. And so that is an interesting thing, but he's, and I think this does speak 
two of the things I like about George Lucas is that he's still optimistic about it. He's like, well, I never got to see like the spaceships, the Star Destroyer flying over the camera and shooting Princess Leia's, Leia's cruiser thing. He's like, I never got to experience that. Every time I watch it, it's the same thing. You know, I can just see the headaches and the long nights and everything going into that. So I'm really excited to see what they're doing with this. I I did not like the quote about um, about Greedo shooting first, but I <laughs> did like the other parts of that article about Lucas. I <laughs> felt that he came off as very much a human character, very right. much a... Uh, a person who who is pretty much at peace with with his legacy in the world. I find it fascinating that he's so anti-internet that he doesn't have email. <laughs> you know, uh, you know that's certainly interesting. But I think that I guess when you're worth five billion dollars, people can like print them out and bring them to you. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> he, he he has a guy he probably calls email that like reads him all electronic you know correspondence that he gets. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> But um, you know, overall, though, I think Lucas is is hard to root for because I think that his constant tinkering, in some ways, insults the audience's memories and loves from our childhood. Like the fact that he thinks that the version of the movies that I grew up watching are the wrong versions shows means that he thinks that my opinion is wrong. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from there. And while, you know, again, artists' ownership and rights, that is a very complicated situation. But I, I feel like, so like, I think I mentioned this on the, the prequels chat, but like, my mom is a huge Beatles fan, and I'm a huge Beatles fan, and she grew up listening to the American releases, and by the time I came around, I was listening to the British releases, and so if I was in her car playing one of my CDs, she'd say, oh, that's wrong. That shouldn't be, like, that shouldn't be happening there. It'd be this song happening. And that's when I felt like how people who grew up with you know, people of my generation feel like the special editions are wrong. Yeah. And Lucas thinks that I'm wrong. And so for a certain, at a certain point, I don't think we'll ever really agree. I just think like you said earlier, if he allowed the regular theatrical cuts to still be out there right. and it wouldn't like, touched it, up digital. You know, yeah, touch him like they would. Exactly. To me, that costs him almost nothing. I, um, I think my examples of people who have done this right, and this might not be the best one. The first one I'm thinking of is Ridley Scott and Blade Runner. Uh-huh. There's a million versions um, of Blade Runner. Yeah, they're all fucking available. Yeah, or like Terry, I have this or Terry really. Gilliam's Brazil set. Exactly, they're all yeah. available. The other big one is um Steven Spielberg's E.T. Mm-hmm. Uh, he recut that and like did some weird like blemish work to it. Yeah, he took out the guns and put in flashlights. Yeah, but he still kept. He still made sure when they released that that the original cut was available. And he's since gone back and said, "Like that was a goddamn mistake. I don't yeah. know why I did that." <laughs> exactly. But he made sure they were available, so you could do this and see, like, well, okay, I can see what you're doing here, and I can see like what you're striving for. But, but <laughs> the original is still there, and so the one that you cherish and like even respect the most is still available. Yes. And I feel like if he wasn't like, oh yeah, I burned the celluloids of the negatives of Star Wars, we wouldn't be like, god damn it, George Lucas. Right. <laughs> um, so here, here is sort of maybe a good point. I know we have to wrap this up in a second. So yeah. uh, here's a good point to end on. 
Is there something that Lucas could do now that he is no longer involved with Star Wars day to day? Is there something he could do that would be his equivalent of throwing the Emperor down that energy shaft <laughs> and redeeming himself after becoming Darth Vader? I I think just the basic one is doing the um I want to I want to say remastered instead of like re-edited mm-hmm. version of like the originals. And just, well, could he even control that anymore? I don't know. I don't know if he even controls that to begin with. Because Fox paid for um, Star Wars, right? Right. Um, I know that he paid for Empire and Return of the Jedi with the proceeds from Star Wars and then the proceeds from all the merchandising they released. So he owns all those things. But I think Star Wars is in a really weird state. And like you were pointing out that his wife might even own Star Wars. Yes. Or there, there are... I don't know how true that is anymore. Yeah, Yeah. I think that once it was sold to Disney, now Disney probably owns everything. Probably. Because I couldn't see Disney making a deal for a Lucasfilm if they didn't get every bit of Star Wars. Right. Yeah, I I can definitely see that. But, like, maybe even acknowledging that, you know, these movies meant so much to a lot of people in their original iteration, like their 1977, 1981, and 1984, mm-hmm. 83 versions. Like, even that acknowledgement and that desperate attempt not to, to, to bury it being gone would even be enough that I'd just be like, well, small steps, you know? Yeah. How about, how about for you? What do you think? Well, you know, I, I think he is certainly on the right track in trying to divest himself of some of his wealth for, for positive causes. I agree. You, you know, I think that at the end of the day, that matters so much more than than whether or not I have to watch grainier footage of Han shooting first, right? That is <laughs> that is more important. But I think creatively also, you know, we forget that Star Wars partially is the reason we have Industrial Light and Magic, which yeah. is partially the reason we have Pixar, which is partially, the, you know, there's there's so much good that has come out of that. And I think maybe becoming somebody who can help other filmmakers facilitate their visions is something that Lucas could be very good at. I could see him being a great I consultant. I, I 100% agree with that. And I think that's why Empire and Jedi, well, Empire specifically, was such a strong movie is because he was so willing to help. Yeah. And bring everybody in and be like, yes. Yes. So I, I think it would be great if he were to to start a little production company and help new filmmakers make their visions come true. Yeah, to me, that would even, be the ultimate redemption for George Lucas. Even on a bigger scale, because I think his last movie was Red Tails. Yes. Yeah, and like that movie wasn't the best, but there was a lot that I respected about it, and it was obviously a lot of passion from the people who were making it. Yes. And I think... I agree with you. That's that's something that George Lucas, I feel, could totally do in his, uh, you know, autumn years. Absolutely. Or whatever. He's 71. You realize that? No, I, I mean, he's, I didn't realize that either. That's, he, he's like my dad's age, which I guess makes sense, but still feels weird. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, thanks, Matt. Yeah, thank you, Brian.
All right, I am here with my good friend Greg Matasevich. We're going to talk about sort of the um, the Star Wars films after their original run. So uh, I first saw the original trilogy on VHS, but the original VHS releases of those films, um, which some would say is the only true release of the films they ever got. Um, So uh, when sort of, you know, just to pull back the curtain a little bit, when we're talking about this podcast, I kind of asked the Multiversity staff, what do you want to talk about? And Greg said, like, the releases, the the special (laughs) editions, all that sort of stuff. So let's just give uh, the listeners a brief history of Star Wars as it's been released and re-released over the years. Well, the, the the sum up is that there is, in some ways, no definitive release of these movies. I mean, even when Star Wars was was originally released, it wasn't released as Episode Four. It was right. just like the movie, and then even before it kind of finished its long run, I think there were prints in the in the theater that started off with episode four or whatever. So you have your theatrical releases of, you know, 77, 80, and 83. They come onto video, you know, a laser disc and, and what have you. And then in 97, we had the release of the um, special editions. You know, Lucas goes back. Uh, he, you know, remasters everything. He makes some tweaks. They go back into the, go back into the theater uh, you know, people go and people go and see them, uh, and then of course we have DVD uh, as a as a home video, as a home release medium. Uh, you know, these special editions then make their way onto onto DVD and you DVD. Get changed a little bit more, right? Yeah, you change a little bit more. DVD begets Blu-ray. They come back to Blu-ray. Get changed a little bit more. Uh, you know, the the you know, the phrase uh, movies or, you know, films or novels or whatever are never finished, only abandoned. Um, yeah. Lucas has, has perennially gone back and tweaked, uh, you know, things both big and both big and small uh, really since the day the first movie came out. I mean, that's kind of thing. So, so the big shift happened in nine, in 97. Right. And then after that, you have like 2004 when the DVDs came out and then maybe 2011 when the Blu-rays yes. sort of hit. Those are those are the big markers there. Yeah. Um, so I had, as I mentioned before, we had in my house the original VHS releases of the three films. Mm-hmm. Then I bought the THX remaster. Yeah. Which came out in maybe ninety four. Those like the black covers. Those are the ones that had the silhouette. Not so. I'm sorry. Like the uh, the half face, the uh, Vader, Yoda, and. Uh, a stormtrooper, storm yeah, yeah. Um, and those were just, you know, th- those were essentially the pre-special edition, special edition. The special effects were cleaned up, but nothing was added or taken away from the films at all. Uh, and then I bought the special edition VHSs, yes. and that was actually the last. Um, that was the last official Lucasfilm film I purchased. I do not own officially licensed DVDs of the Star Wars films. Huh. Okay. I I have when I was in college at the Pittsburgh Comic Con in 2001, I believe I purchased DVDs that were rips of the THX remaster laser discs. Mm, okay. And to me that was good enough. 
somehow, I guess it was because the prequels were included. I remember there was there was that one Star Wars box set that had the special edition and the original editions on the same discs. Yes. I did not buy that. And okay. I'm kicking myself big time for not having bought that. Because that's prob that might be the last time we ever get those. Although I hope not. I hope that this new regime realizes how much money they're leaving on the table. Right. And it doesn't do that. But anyway, we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. Yeah. yeah. Did you see the special editions in theaters? I did. So did I. Uh that was that was my like sophomore year in college. Yeah, so I was we... probably like a freshman in high school. Yeah. Uh, so that was a that was a big deal. Um, the internet was a thing, big, a yeah. thing. So we would see, you know, sites like I think Ain't It Cool News was was uh-huh. up by then. So we were like, oh, this is coming out, or oh, you know, they're trying out special effects here, so they're gonna they're test driving stuff for the prequels that are gonna come out and 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 things. And so so the 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 special editions were the first time I got to see the movies in the you know in the theaters. Same here. Yeah. Um, and it was a hell of a it was a hell of an experience. I gotta say. Uh, Empire really kind of messed me up. Like, I'd forgotten how much of a drain that movie can be. Yeah. Like, it's awesome. But I came out of that movie like, wow, that's... And I, I mean, I was completely familiar with the movie. Like, yeah. I wasn't a shock, a shock or anything. But I walked out of that being like, oh, man, they are screwed. All right. Um, so I, I, have, I want to go sort of movie by movie here. Okay. So, the big changes in A New Hope, for the yeah. most part, are, are thus... There's a lot of new CGI kind of floating around Mos Eisley. Mm-hmm. Just animals in the background and stuff. Um, Han shoots Greedo. Sorry, Greedo shoots first. Yeah. Maybe the most egregious thing in any of the special editions. Because uh, it totally yeah. changes the, the tone of the character. Yes. Of Han Solo. Uh, we get Jabba the Hutt in a scene in the hangar in Mos Eisley again. Mm-hmm. Um and then from there, in A New Hope, there's new explosions when things blow up and things like that. Just tweaking of the special effects. But are those those are the big um, sort of extra scenes in that one, correct? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you get... Yes. I remember the theater booing when Greedo shot first. <laughs> Which is funny. I feel like a lot of the... At least, like... Maybe this is my own personal bias. There's a lot of Star Wars stuff for me when I see it the first time. I'm just so happy to be seeing Star Wars. Yeah. I have less of a critical eye with it. Right. Like, for instance, uh, when I first saw The Phantom Menace, I didn't by any means love it. But I did not think it was all that bad the first time. Because mm-hmm. I was riding this euphoria high of, oh, Star Wars in theaters again. This is wonderful. So, but, yeah. but Greedo shooting first, the theater booed. It was right. opening night of Star Wars and the theater <laughs> booed. And then I remember everybody groaning when Han stepped on Jabba's tail. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, I don't remember too many moments from seeing that in the theater. And you would think I'd remember more because that's I was a huge Star Wars fan who had never seen it in the theater. Is there anything right. that stands out for, me, for you from that initial viewing? No, I mean the stuff that you, you know, the stuff that you mentioned. There were a couple of shots added to like the um, the Death Star battle at the end. Yep. Uh, there's that fly, you know, that that really close flyby by, uh, you know, whatever the hell the name of the planet is. Yeah. Um, little things like that, but yeah, it was pretty like, you know, I was just so I, I was so thrilled to see it. You know, in the theater, I could just sort of kind of ignore 
the okay here you know han shoots for or Greedo shoots first we know that's not the way it really happened but if that's the price i gotta pay to see this in the big screen with the john williams music going at you know 160,000 decibels or whatever it is I was like yeah what whatever yeah, yeah. you know I'll, I'll do that uh okay next M- empire so so here's the thing about empire for some reason i don't know why uh, my, my best friend ken and i do a lot of stuff together we actually were going to see the force awakens together uh and we went to go see Empire together with our friend Steve. And our friend Jimmy came with us having never seen Star Wars before. Um, wow. Kid, kids might forget. Kids might I know this now. There was a time in the mid-90s where not everyone has seen Star Wars. Mm-hmm. In fact, my wife has never seen a Star Wars movie. That's a whole other story for another yeah. day. Um, but so Jimmy came with us to see Empire. And... At the end of the movie, he's like, uh, first of all, I'm, I'm purposely mispronouncing this. I just want to put that out there. He goes, okay. what happened to Hans? What happens to Hans? And <laughs> I was like, who? He's like, the guy from like, oh, Han. Like, there's no S at the end of it. Because, again, like, if you've never seen the movie, Hans is a real name. Han yeah. really isn't. So, you know, whatever. But right. he was like, he was like, you have to tell us. I'm like, no. No, see the next movie. And he's like, you got to be kidding me. And, you know, this is, this is before... Yeah. You know, the, I mean, there was the internet was there, but it was much harder to, to sort of go yeah. online and watch something or whatever. And so he was so mad at us that we wouldn't tell him what happened. <laughs> um, but that's the impact of Empire, right? Like that yeah. that that movie really ends. You have no idea what's going to happen. No, uh, I have a a friend of mine is is a good bit older than I am, and he was old enough to have seen the movies in the theaters, the original release. And right. I remember talking to him once, and he asked me. Well, my favorite Star Wars film was, and I said Empire, and he said I hate that fucking movie, and I was like, <laughs> "What?" He goes, "You have to understand." He said, "I was uh, 11 years old when that movie came out, and I left the theater. Luke lost his hand. Han is frozen. Vader gets away. Yeah, I had to wait three years to find out what happened. I hate that movie, and like I, I, I can sympathize with an 11 year old feeling that way yeah. about that movie. Um. But the, the thing about seeing that film in the theaters that really struck me was when every character is reintroduced, there's like a really beautiful shot of them that acts as an applause moment. Mm. And the theater did applaud. When yes. every character showed up on screen, they applauded. And it never overlapped with the dialogue. Like it was just very it was shot very consciously to realize that like there might be applause moments here. And it was actually, it was very, very cool to see that with a with a theater full of people. Yeah. And that's the that's the the film with the least amount of Lucas Dickery in it. Yes, uh, there's the one shot of Bespin where Leia is looking out a window, and like she looks totally out of place because she was shot in 1980, and the rest is like looks like a, you know uh, my phrase always for Lucas CGI is like a PlayStation One game, um, <laughs> you know. And, but other than that, I don't. And and you see a little bit more of the um, the snow monster from the beginning. Right. But other than that, there's really not that much more stuff going on there. There's, yeah, so there's more of the, you know, of the Hoth creature. Yeah. Uh, which is symbolic of new new Lucas versus old Lucas. Right. Like, old Lucas would have been like, hey, it's like Spielberg, you know, with Jaws. It's scarier not to see, see or right. the shark. Now he's like, hey, we've got this stuff. We can see the shark. And you're like, yeah, it's just not as... It's not as you know. It's not as scary. Uh, there was a little tweak at the end uh, where 
after Luke goes off the you know goes off the end and mm-hmm. Vader is going back to his ship. Originally, he's like, "Bring my shuttle," and you can hear like he is pissed, like he is super super like don't like just do the thing. Right. Um. In the special edition, he's like, you know, uh, contact the Star Destroyer to prepare for my arrival, and you're like, yeah, not as not nearly as cool. You know, there was. Right. It's like it didn't need to be tweaked. Why are you doing that? And I guess he did that so he can insert this extra shot of the of the of Vader's shuttle going up to the going up to the Star Destroyer, which you didn't need. Like there was a lot of ex- there, there was you know extraneous bits of business even right. um, even then. But that movie not only uh, I mean I I shouldn't say obviously it's the best of the three, but it personally is. for me it's the best of the, it, yeah, it okay is. it's the best of the yeah. three. <laughs> um, it is also one of the most colorful movies, uh-huh. and it's that color. Especially like towards the end with the, the the blues and the reds and the thing of 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 uh, um, like Cloud City that really really stuck out for me even when I was seeing images from it before I even saw the movie like yeah. it was it was something that really stuck out to me uh, so it is uh, yeah seeing that in the theater that was like that was kind of a perfect movie in a way you yeah. know so I, I like I said I was sort of not bummed afterwards, but I was, I felt like I was put through the ringer, but I was like, that was an experience. That yeah. was an experience. I wish you, I don't know if, if they're doing this by you, a theater by me is doing the, the marathon. Yeah. I don't want to go see all six movies before I see the force awakens. Yeah. I would pay to go see empire by itself before the force awakens mm. in a theater again, but that's, it's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, the return of the Jedi has, uh, maybe the two other most egregious uh, bits of Lucasing in it. Uh, <laughs> it has the the redone Max Rebo band. Oh, with, Jedi uh, rocks! Yeah, as, as Vincent did today, like they have a CGI character literally screaming in your face, <laughs> yeah. which is a perfect way of describing that. And then the the new ending of Jedi. Yeah, uh, with showing all the different cities celebrating, and they took out that great little yub nub piece of music and put in something that's not nearly as silly or, or as fun. And of uh, course, uh, eventually you get the different force ghosts, but that's not, yeah. that wasn't the original, uh, special edition. Yeah. Uh, interesting little bit of trivia that I was, that I was, uh, made me chuckle. The actor who played Anakin Skywalker, mm-hmm. his name was, uh, Sebastian Shaw. Yep. Who of course, X-Men villain, yes. you know, uh, uh, based off of Robert Shaw back in, you know, the Hellfire Club. So right. anyway, I always get a chuckle whenever I see that. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, but that's the type of, eh, you know, I, I, I am who I am. So. No, I, I agree. I understand. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, we're very simpatico that way. But yeah, but yeah um, Return of the Jedi, I, I remember seeing that in the theater with, with my cousin Beth, who was a, was a, who is and was a very close friend of mine. And she loved Star Wars as much as I did when we were kids. I and mean, we were in high school at this point. And we had kind of, I don't want to say we had grown apart, but we had grown apart a little bit, but we were able to like come back together and see Return of the Jedi in the theater. And that was a, a very nice moment for me. But, you know, let's just talk overall about the special editions. Um, you know, to me, it's problematic to ever try and touch up something that's old. Um, you know, I'm a musician. I've been in bands for a long time. And whenever I find, you know, old recordings that my band did, there's there's the impulse to go in and change it, and rarely does that work out well. You know, right. thing, things are best left untouched for a lot of reasons. And, you know, you're a big Beatles fan the way I'm a big Beatles fan. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm glad that there's been a limited amount of dickery with the Beatles catalog. 
Mm-hmm. Like we had that love show, you know, that was that kind of made like mega mixes of all the songs. But yeah. that's easy enough to ignore. That mm-hmm. never becomes the focal point of what it means to listen to the Beatles. Unfortunately yeah. for Star Wars fans, the special edition <laughs> is all you get now, really, when you right. want to watch Star Wars. To a certain extent, yes. Yeah. Um, um, go ahead. Well, a, a couple of things. Um, so, yeah, the the Lucas there, – there's a – there's an interesting comics parallel between Lucas and a couple of different comic artists uh, that I think of, and I haven't quite worked this out. But the, the <laughs> two I sort of I sort of connect him to are Rob Liefeld mm-hmm. and Neil Adams. Okay, Neil Adams will not. <laughs> you want to talk about going back and tweaking stuff? Neil Adams will not let shit go. That's like true. that that uh, Batman illustrated by Neil Adams. Those things he's gone back and like recolored stuff and retweaked stuff, and it's just you're just like, no, it was good. At the time, yes, you might technically be a better artist now, but it just doesn't fit. And the thing is, he didn't go back and do, like, the entire thing over. Right, it's just one page. (laughs) Right, he would do, like, spot things here and there. He special Uh, editioned it. Yeah, exactly. And that was, and so going back over to Lucas, the special editions, you know, the idea of, okay, let's go 20 years later, let's use the technology we have now. And it's not, it shouldn't be, don't think of it as necessarily improve it, but just sort of even it out. So making sure, like, all the lightsabers look the same. You know, like in match from shot to shot to shot, um, there are things like in the in Star Wars and like the the you know the Death Star attack. Some of the uh, engines on the X wings, the red comes out in some of them and not others. Like it doesn't look consi- consistent. Right. right now, if you're watching the movie, do you notice that? I don't no, until somebody not. pointed it out to me, and now of course I see it like all the time. Right, but but you're like, hey, you know what? Let's go back. We've got the technology. Let's go ahead and smooth things out. So. The special editions never succeeded on that level because they never did the sort of blanket. Let's even everything out. There were things that even now, in even in um, you know the editions you can get now, they're still not right. <laughs> they're still not right. They're still not consistent. They're still uneven. Um, and that's not to then even talk about in some of the later editions the like massive color changes mm-hmm. that are that they've put in like. Um, now, if you look at, um, like, let's talk about Empire for a second. So, you know, they're on Hoth for the first, like, third of the film. Hoth being an ice planet should be white. Now, it's like most of those scenes have been kind of, are play as if there's, like, this blue filter on them. So the snow, in a lot of cases, looks kind of bluish, and it has this, this type of patina to it that was never there in the originals. You can go back and see stills of the original stuff, and that's not the color, you know, that they had. It's like, a lot of movies now have this type of steel blue right. color to them that it's like everyone saw a James Cameron movie and we're like, that's the look that we want. And yeah. you're like, dude, that doesn't work all the fucking time. Did you uh, see, by the way, I just you go off topic here a little bit. Yeah. There was a, um, somebody recolored the Man of Steel trailer. Yes, and it looked fantastic. Yes, well. exactly. <laughs> yes. It, it looked... It's the same idea. It removed that slate blue color and yeah. makes it look like, you know, more vibrant. You can have color. You can have differentiations of color. Yes. Uh, so, and so, so that has been, you know, sort of the legacy of the, of the, you know, the, the special editions, whatever, is that things have changed, but for every one thing you look at and you're like, oh, okay, that's cool. There's two or three other things that you're just like, eh, that's, that's unnecessary. 
you know? Yeah. Uh, even things like if you look at, uh, you know, even if you look at Empire or whatever, or even maybe the end of Return of the Jedi, uh, you know, Luke's lightsaber is green and Vader's is like pink. Right. It's like purple. You're like, no, it's fucking red. It's a red lightsaber. It's just, And you look at it, you're like, it does not look red. Uh, does that necessarily matter in the scheme of things? Not necessarily, but it's the preponderance of these things that show up and you're just like, eh, you know, I mean, it's kept you, you know, from buying, uh, you know, official releases for right. 15 years. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. So, so let's move this into sort of the, I guess the third part of this, the, the, what it, what, you know, how can we get you uh, a copy or, or how can we uh, let you be able to experience the way it was meant to be? The meant to be meant to be experienced. Um, in the last couple of years, I've uh, you know, in my wanderings around the internet, I have discovered, and there are articles about this and stuff. It's not like it's a secret society or anything, but there are, uh, if you can imagine, there are fans of Star Wars who have uh, exceptional technical knowledge and a lot of free time on their hands. What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so there are people that do, you know, what they call fan edits. So mm-hmm. they'll go back and they'll re-edit the movies and take things out that they don't like and put in maybe deleted scenes back into the main movie. It's interesting to see movies that we know so well in sort of different contexts Absolutely. and stuff. And like how, like that's that in and of itself interests, uh, interests me. You have then a subset of those fans that do what they call theatrical reconstructions. So they will basically take what they've, they've taken the, let's say they've taken the 2011 Blu-ray version so it's high, so it's high def. It's you know 1080 or 720. I think they work at 720 as a nice compromise between regular definition and sort of high def. Right. And they will using upscaled old footage, using digital techniques, using this, that, and the other. They will essentially recreate in high, in you know a 720 high def as close to an approximation of the original theatrical release of this as possible. And I got to say, they look really good. Have you watched them on a TV or on a computer screen? TV. And do you so? The, it's my. Let me just say, it's my preferred way to watch. Well, yes, I, I understandably so, and we're yeah. going to talk after this about you know various things, but um, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> but you know, so, I'll, I'll so, talk about the legality of this, of this in a second. Yeah, but so if I'm watching it on my nice, you know, forty-inch LED TV I have in my basement, right? Is it going to look a close to what a blu-ray quality would look like yes because it's essentially it is essentially like the blu-ray you know the the sort of the high def um file Mm -hmm. and then for specific shots things have been kind of patched over right you know so it's it's as much of that sort of high def master original as possible with these patches of things sort of covering them sometimes you'll have an entire shot that had to been you know, up, up, uh, up resed from a standard definition. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think when they do 720, it makes it easier because it's less that you're having to pull it from the, I guess the 480 of, of standard def. Right. Um, but they have, you know, and not even just like visual, they'll have, I think the star Wars release has like six or seven different audio versions, like a 5.1 audio, 6.1 audio, the original mono, uh, a stereo version. Like they, wow yeah you know too i don't want to say too much free time on their hands because it's a public service doing this um but it's it's yeah there is zero screwing around um with uh you know with these so so what i do for my movies is i have an apple tv uh when i get my movies 
uh, I convert them over to um, MP4 files so that I can watch them on my so that I can stream them onto my TV mm-hmm. uh, and stuff. And it looks, you know, it it looks good. I mean, it looks like I bought a you know a it looks like the Blu-ray, but essentially, you know, um, certainly well enough that when you're watching it, you're not like you don't get a bootleg feel when you look at it. Right. You look at it and you're like, this is this is amazing, you know. You mentioned something about legality here. Yeah. So, so the my understanding of this is that Lucasfilm, you know, knew about these sort of things. I, I've got another section to talk about, but basically, Lucasfilm knows about these uh, as long as you own the source, um, uh, not documents, but uh, releases. Mm-hmm. So, if you have a copy of the 2011 Blu-rays that came out. Uh, and you've purchased them, and you have them, they're legally not going to come after you if you have, you know, as long as you didn't pay for it, This uh, the, the, the theatrical reconstruction. As long as you're not selling them for profit, is you're making no money off of them, and if you have a copy of the, of the release that it's sourced from, legally, uh, Lucasfilm is willing to look the other way. Okay. Um, and has been for six seven you know at least the last almost decade or whatever that was one of the big things about when disney bought lucasfilm they're like oh disney's gonna crack down on that you know but it's been a couple years and you know knock on wood nothing's happened so so yeah so we got that we got the theatrical reconstructions and then the last part that i wanted to sort of bring up really quickly is uh a specific editor has been doing things called the revisited series uh, his name and I, it's A D Y W A N. I think it's eighty one is okay. how they pronounce it. I don't know. I never really hear it talked about. But he essentially, uh, you know, saw the Star Wars special edition and he's like, I want to make my own special edition, doing the type of things we were talking about before, like making sure the evening all, out stuff, right? All the lightsabers look the same. All the this, all the that. Um, and he's so far he's put out a version of Star Wars called Star Wars Revisited. Uh, he's <laughs> theoretically. Uh, on the on the home stretch of putting out Empire Revisited, um, the the Star Wars Revisited is only out in standard definition right now. The uh, Empire Revisited, when it comes out, it'll be in 720 uh, HD, and then after that, he's going to do Return of the Jedi, and then all the prequels and like rework them and everything. But it's, I mean, the the Star Wars Revisited is essentially what the special edition should have been. You know, there are there have been new tweaks uh there have been uh you know an evening out of all this other stuff like he recut the um death star attack uh to have like more just like a different pace like it's not different it's just you you it feels more it feels a little more epic than like what they could have done at the time and it was accomplished a lot through just like uh differing up shots uh, adding little things to the background just so you get a bigger sense of there being this larger battle going on. Um, so, like, one of the things, uh, and this, this, I just use this as an example, um, during that battle, because they're... So they're fighting on this moon, which is essentially orbiting this huge-ass red planet. Right. So you would figure, you know, a decent amount of time that you're looking at this battle, you're going to see this huge-ass red planet in the background, right? Now, in Star Wars, you don't see that because that was probably one more special effect hassle they didn't want to have to deal with when they were doing all this other stuff, right. you know? But 20 years later, 30 years later, you know, almost 40 years later, like, hey, we've got the technology to literally just add 
this, you know, this part of this thing in the background just to give a, even if it's just on a subconscious level, a better sense of sort of what's going on. Uh, and it's it's fantastic. Uh, so the the theatrical reconstructions are my preferred versions of watching the older versions. Um, but when it comes to like, hey, I just want to have like what would have been the special edition, I put in Star Wars Revisited, and it's amazing. Um, so some of the uh, if people want to find out what I'm talking about, they can go to uh, YouTube. Um, YouTube, uh, like Star Wars Revisited, you'll come up with like a trailer and a couple of comparison videos. Uh, Empire Strikes Back Revisited, you'll get a couple of comparison videos and stuff. Uh, the comparison videos are also cool because it'll it'll also illustrate the the color differentiation that I was talking about earlier, um, especially for the Empire stuff. There's a, there's a couple of side by sides where he compares the revi- the recolored revisited um, image, which is sort of sourced from the original theatrical color scheme versus like what is on the 2011 i think he's updated it to the 2011 blu-rays and like some of the stuff where luke is out in the snow you know before han finds him or all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. it's it's night and day. i mean literally like night and day you're like that is that's crazy how good it looks now and how like what the official version is you're like yeah this doesn't look you know it just doesn't look right you know yeah so, anyway yeah. so that's my <laughs> that is my long uh, uh, rant about about that. No, so. I think that's really cool. Um, you know, one of the things that that bugs me is that I don't own these movies, and you know, part of my rationale was I don't want to buy a box set with all six films, right? Because I'm never going to watch the prequels again. Well, I just watched the prequels again yeah. <laughs> ahead of the Force Awakens. Yeah, 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 but like on a regular basis, right? I'm not going to do that. Um, but now, you know, as a parent, and I hate starting any sentence that way, but as a parent, I would like to share this with my daughter and mm-hmm. my child that is on the way that's gender is undetermined as of this point. Or not undetermined, it's determined, I just don't know it. Right. You know? right. Um, and part of me feels like, you know, they might want to watch those prequels. Okay, that makes it more likely I'm going to spend the money on it. But if I'm going to spend the money on it, I would really rather spend the money on... Multi, uh, a release that has multiple editions on it. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not even asking for the special editions to be done away with. Right. I just want an option on the disc to watch the original release right. or something close to the original release. Do you well, think we're going to get that anytime soon? Define anytime soon. Well, okay. Like, so in the next couple of years? Yes. Yes. See, I think we're not going to get it until after episode nine is done, and they're going to release like the the nine films <laughs> as a Blu-ray, yeah, okay. and then it'll be an option. But you have to realize that's twenty nineteen, yeah, the theatrical release. So we're talking twenty twenty, yeah, five years. Yeah, you know, um, I don't know if I can wait five years. Yeah, okay. <laughs> You know, um, uh, but, but you do think we're going to get it eventually. I, I, I do. I mean, I think Disney realizes that there's a demand for it. Um, they'll put it when they do it, they'll put in the money to go back and rescan the, you know, the, the original trilogy. So we'll probably get 4k nice, 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 nice rescans of, of those originals. Um, the, the prequels are interesting because, because the second and third are digital, there's no, like they can only look so good, right. you know. The resolution is 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 sort of locked at whatever the hell it was, 
you know, 20 something or whatever that it was when it came out. Uh, so yeah. Uh, but I think we, I think we will get, uh, because Disney loves what they'll do is they'll put them out and then they'll pull them away. Uh-huh. They'll make it pay for them, and then they'll put them back into the vault, as Disney does, and then it'll come out again in 10 years, and like, hey, it's time to buy it now, otherwise it goes back in the vault for 10 years, which is really a... Borderline uh, evil practice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it, it's something they've been doing for decades, so yeah. I don't see them charging. I don't see them changing for, like, one of the biggest money makers no, you know, of course on, not. On, on the planet. <laughs> right Now, uh, I, I want to kind of end our conversation here with a rumor I had heard years ago. Okay. And I've never researched this, and I don't know why. I heard a rumor years ago that when George Lucas went through his divorce, that his wife, his ex-wife, got some cut of Star Wars, but the the I, the revision the the um the language said that if there were serious revisions done to it and there was a new release, she would not get any profits from it. And the rumor was that that was one of the impetuses for doing the special edition was that Lucas could make money off this while cornering his ex-wife out of it. Without having to... Uh, um... And I don't know... I, I have no idea if that's true or not, um, but I wonder if... Regardless of that, I do think we're going to get these releases because Lucas is not involved anymore. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things. First off, there's a there's a really wonderful... I think it's a book... Uh, I got it as an ebook, but I think it's like a, you can get an actual book book called "The Secret History of Star Wars." You're the second person to mention that book to me today. It is, it's totally worth getting. Um, Writing it down and, right now. Yeah, we'll we'll have to talk about that later. Um, but yeah, so just in terms of Star Wars, Marsha Lucas uh, is somebody who doesn't get nearly enough credit. She was, I mean, I mean, she's still alive, so I should say is, but uh, she was a Oscar winning editor. Right and worked on Star Wars and really did contribute a lot to, uh, you know what, a lot of people sort of give Lucas kind of or George Lucas kind of credit for. Um, she did get a lot of of stuff in in the divorce, uh, so I don't think the I. I don't think that rumor is is true to the to the full extent, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but there is probably there is probably some shred of 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 something there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a whole litany or, or there's a whole list of people that uh, deserve more credit than they uh, than they get, and in some ways, the, George Lucas deserves much more credit than he gets for for some other things you know and yeah. and the secret history of star wars is a really good kind of object somewhat objective sort of re-examining of a lot of documents from the time to sort of give a unvarnished look of what people were talking about and, and try and give like a truer account of sort of who did what and sort of what was going on and how you know how much of a lie that the hey we had this all planned out you know, from the beginning. No, you didn't. Right. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. And that's cool, but don't don't try and sell me like you knew all this stuff. Yeah, they didn't know Vader was Luke's father. They didn't yeah. know Leia was Luke's sister. Yeah, 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 yeah. None of yeah. that was planned. Yeah, none of that was planned. But it's still an interesting story, the evolution of everything, of, of you know, a series that sort of rightly or not rightly or wrong, but, you know, it is one of the most important film series in you know, in history, not only just for sort of its, you know, narrative impact, but even just the technical impact. I mean, like ILM came out of Star Wars. What would, uh, think of our movie industry without ILM. Right. Think of like any major 
tentpole movie of the last like 30 years if they didn't have ILM doing the special effects. I mean, it's, it, you know, movies that you love and adore so much more than Star Wars would not have been possible without Star Wars, without the technical, uh, you know, stuff that went into making the original Star Wars and then bring Brock to Bear to do these special editions and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> Any uh, closing thoughts before we uh, wrap up for tonight? Um, no, I mean, I'm I'm excited. For uh, for Force Awakens, um, in a you know, I don't have any sort of like emotional. I mean, I don't have any sort of like conscious emotional sort of. This needs to be good, or it's going to ruin my childhood, or whatever. Right, right. Like the, the prequels and stuff like Watchmen, or whatever, like that killed that for me. But I'm I want to be, I want to be excited. I want to be, you know, I want to I want to go back and have and have good feelings about it. And then I think. I, I think J.J. Abrams is a much better fit for Star Wars than Star Trek, and so Great. I think I think there's going to be a lot of feels uh, when yeah. I see that movie. And, uh, you know, it's not that often we get a chance to, to have those type of experiences, so I'm, I'm excited for it. My biggest hope for, for tonight, my biggest hope changes every day. My biggest <laughs> hope for tonight is that we're not going to be bitching in 10 years about the Force Awakens Special Edition. Yeah, I don't think that I don't I don't think we have to worry about that. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Thanks, Greg. All right. Mercifully, you now have a break from me. This is Chris Thompson from Orbital Comics and James Johnston, our London Bureau, I guess we'll call those two, talking about Star Wars television. Welcome to another segment in Multiversity's ongoing coverage and exploration of the world of Star Wars. I am here with James Johnston. Heyo! Who is one of my fellow contributors and very conveniently here in London at the moment. Yeah! Study abroad for things. Is that what it's about? You're studying yeah, studying abroad? several broads. Ayo! Hey! Ayo! And we're drinking beer. And drinking beer. This is the most hetero I've been in, like, my life. <laughs> you're, you're like a proper dude bro at the moment or something. Come on, guys! Let's play a football! <laughs> So <laughs> talk about how much we hate our dads. Instead, so Star Wars. we're gonna get super nerdy. Yeah. Mm. Well, and come on, Star Wars is like the ultimate saga of someone that's got issues with their dad. I think so. I think I've read some more. Yeah, I think it's it's what I would consider entry level daddy issues sci-fi because yeah. then there's stuff like Hitman where he straight up murders his dad after like finding out about his secret family in Ireland. But I'd say Star Wars has some daddy issues. Definitely. Definitely, but what we want to talk about are mm. the, the TV issues and the TV appearances of Star Wars, and I'm quite interested in this because I think we're going to have different uh, perspectives or, or uh, yeah. memories of this. Yeah, because there's a bit of a generational gap. I am about 14 years old. What, now? Yeah. No, no, 20, something. <laughs> I'm, like, something more than that. 25? Yeah. yeah. yeah Great. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I guess if I kick things off, because mine would be the earlier memories, no doubt. Uh, I've spoken all about how important Star Wars was to me as a kid. I saw the original film at the cinema and... Not long after that, I remember seeing on TV they had a Muppets special with the cast of Star Wars on it. Really? Yeah. And Have this you... is separate from the Christmas special. Oh yes. Oh, I think I think I've like heard rumblings of this. You never seen it though. I've never seen it. I, I don't know if it's one of those things that doesn't get repeated at all. You know, for George Lucas has somehow locked it down. I feel like it's one of those things where it's pretty good, but it's not as devastatingly bad as the Christmas special, where like a whole quarantine goes out and or everybody knows like about it. Devastatingly good. Devastatingly good. I still have to see the Christmas special. It is on YouTube. I mean, you can I don't find have, it out there. I don't have any more excuses that everyone else did in the 90s where they'd be like, oh, I have to like go find a videotape. Yeah. Yeah, I don't no. even know what a videotape is. <laughs> I yeah, I see that's the annoying thing. It's like when they first showed these things, we didn't have video cassettes, so we mm. couldn't record it for ourselves. So essentially, I saw it back in the late seventies, mm-hmm. and and that was it. But the the Muppets, it was I mean, it was fantastic. It was just a, a great special. All the main cast were there and represented, and. You know, it, it was great. It was perfect for a kid. And mm. I think the thing with Star Wars originally is it was a kid's film. It, yeah. it was aimed at, at kids. So for them to appear on the Muppets was totally fine. It's like, you know, don't get your panties in a bunch. It's not that serious. It's... Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's that like whole Star Wars is a kid thing kind of goes through all of the TV iterations of Star Wars for the mm. first 15 years out of the movie. This is where the fact that I owned a Star Wars encyclopedia comes into play. Right. Because they had, I remember they had, like, the Star Wars, I don't, I don't remember, I wasn't there, I was but merely a lively sperm in my dad's balls, but they had, like, the droid cartoon that had, like, the first appearance of Boba Fett. Droids and Ewoks. The Ewoks, the Ewoks. Which... Were those mo- separate movies, or were those, like, ABC Family Ewok specials with the movie, with the Ewoks? Oh, God. Okay, well, hang on, if we, if we mm. get it in the historical context, so I think... I don't know whether the Muppets came first or the Holiday Special, but they were around the same time. Okay, yeah, let's. The, the, they're in the initial wave of what could go wrong with Star Wars, or what other avenues could we explore? Yeah, perhaps. And so they did the animated segment on the Holiday Special, which was the first appearance of Boba Fett, mm-hmm. which obviously is you know historic, and he looks <laughs> you know a, a bit different. Um, I mean, I have really good memories of that as well. That's the whole thing with Chewbacca and his Wookiee family his at Wookie Christmas. Family. I don't know. I, I still really have a, a soft spot. Do I, you ever think there was like a one child who went to see Empire Strikes Back and was like furious that that uh, Chewbacca's family was not involved? Yeah. Like well, they were like, really hoping they'd they see not... the return of Chewbacca's fam? Uh, uh, yeah. Why, why did they not reappear? Of course. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's like this missing episode. I hope you've got the the Marvel comic series at the moment, the the Chewbacca one. I hope they're dealing with what happened to his family. You know, these guys, we saw them in the holiday special. Is Chewbacca going to save Life Day? <laughs> I want Santa. I want Chewbacca in a Santa hat with a crossbow. <laughs> he has eight. He has twelve reindeer, all of which are separate Wookies that he has somehow made agree. Yeah. To be his reindeer. I mean, there's there's so much potential. But yeah, it, it was amazing. I, I really liked it. And I hope that at some point 
they make an agreement to actually re-release this stuff. Because yeah. it was always Lucas going, no, 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 but I would still love to see it again. And I think there's many others in that boat. But then, I think it was the sort of mid to late 80s, I want to say sort of more later 80s, that they'd done the Droids and Ewoks cartoons, mm -hmm. which prior to that, they'd just... I, I, oh, Mid-80s, they did the Ewok films you mentioned. Mm. Someone else is probably covering this in films, but there was two. There was the Caravan of Courage. Yeah, who could forget? The, was it Battle 4 or Battle of Endor? I think that was... If I, I, had, to put, if I had to put down cash money on this, I would say Battle for Endor. Mm. I think so as well. To differentiate it from the Battle of Endor, which took place in 42... In three ABY, okay. I don't know how that time. It's not the be all or end or if you don't get it right. Hey, nani nani, boom boom. But uh, yeah, it was um, it was yeah, it was kind of interesting. So you had then the droids and the Ewoks cartoons, very much aimed at kids, mm -hmm. and then they adapted them into comics again with the Star Comics line through Marvel. Yeah, it, it's so funny. It's like I. I haven't yet been able to do one of these chats where we don't end up crossing over into other areas. Yeah. Star Wars is so uh, licensed and merchandised and, and it's, cohesive it's, almost. I think for for like anybody who goes into Star Wars looking to get into like it beyond the movies, it goes from a film franchise into just like this weird life conglomerate of a story. <laughs> Absolutely. Which now is not canon. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's kind of you invest all these years in it. People are like I've got all novels and whatever. It's like no, none of that counts. It's like the cold, apathetic hand. I like to think it wasn't even someone who was like really passionate about it. It, it was just like some executive at Disney who was like, I eh, just make it not canon. Yeah, no, it was, it was a bean counter. It was like, well, how can we get them to buy into all our stuff? It's like, well. Just make all the other stuff unofficial, not canon, and if they want the real story, they have to start buying what we produce from now on. But we are going to just take these books and adapt them into the movies, right? Oh yeah, have you seen that Jay Solo thing? They wrote the next three movies for us. Great! <laughs> yeah, there, there is a, a whole bunch of that that's going to yeah. go on, no doubt. So, what about what was your Star Wars TV experience? Because I'm assuming yours comes yeah. much later. My, scene com my uh, Star Wars ex TV experience comes much later. I've covered this in the other podcast, but I watched Phantom Menace, and I sort of, like, didn't really get it. And I watched Attack of the Clones, and all, I didn't get it. All of us had that. And in the, but I was still, like, sort of excited because I was young, dumb, full of excitement. And in about, in, the, like, fifth grade or something... On the Cartoon Network, they had these animated shorts from Gennady Tartasovsky, the guy who mm -hmm. does famous for cartoons like Hotel Transylvania and Hotel Transylvania 2 and nothing else, who um, just did these animated shorts for the Clone Wars, which were incredible. There was, like, because it's just, it was good action animation, General Grievous looked like a threat, Asajj Vestris was great. Uh, and they even made Anakin look like an actual character. And so I loved that, and I wanted... And it leaves off in a cliffhanger to episode three, which was coming out at the time. Right. And so I went to episode three, hoping it would be exactly like the cartoon, and lo, it was not. No. So I came in with, like, 
the TV show generally heightened my expectations of what Star Wars could be, and then episode three was like, pretty good, not enough child murder for my tastes. <laughs> yeah. There's another episode where we explained that in my ideal version of episode three, the scene where Anakin kills off the Padawans is the entire second act. Right, okay. Ruthless and bloodthirsty, James. Really gotta get the, really, just cut to the point, cut to the chase. What I really liked about the Clone Wars cartoons and things is that it expanded that because it was so glossed over in the actual movies. Yeah. And it had been built up and seeded for so long throughout everything. You're like, suddenly, oh my God, I'm going to get to watch the Clone Wars. Yeah. And you kind of go, what the hell was that, George? What what were you thinking about? This is, you know, so anticlimactic. It's, you know, all this foreplay and... You know, no climax. Yeah. It was terrible. And so to actually see people going in and, and padding out this world and giving you something there, it was, that was great. Well, I think that's... It's because in the movie format, they kind of have, have themselves hyped up and they have to get sort of all the high points that they need and it comes at the cost of it not really feeling like a world anymore. And even though it's so fast-paced, like, if you look at episode four, episode four is relatively fat, uh, slow, not fast-paced, but it still kind of feels like its own breathing world. And I think you yeah. can kind of see that with the Marvel movies right now, where a lot of them, especially uh, Age of Ultron, are, like, sort of rushed, are a little rushed and just kind of yeah, don't really feel like movies. But then you get the Netflix shows like Daredevil and Jessica Jones, where you go, oh, people are real living, breathing characters in this world. Where's that? In some other stuff. True. So, I guess the the TV side of things has allowed them to explore that with Star Wars, especially in modern times. I mean, yeah. I think those first three films, they're still all living, breathing characters. Pacing is great, etc. Yeah. The, the prequel three, he just forgot how to do everything he'd done so well before... Mm-hmm. And, yeah, TV kind of rescued that by building the stories around. Yeah, and I think that helps sort of, like, younger kids now like Star Wars. Because I I don't exactly have the ratings demographics on me or anything. But I'm under the impression that Clone Wars was actually really popular with kids. Yeah, that's... I and that sort of, like, yeah. helps with the whole, like... Because I, I think it sort of sucks for my generation to not really have a readily accessible... Thing to, movie to go oh that's why Star Wars is good but as we were growing and, up and we would still we get said, you know you never had the Muppets or the yeah. holiday special but as we were growing up we did have some of the video games we had Battlefront we had the Star Wars Clone Wars TV show which if you talk to pretty much anyone who saw it they'd be like oh yeah that was the tops yeah well and now there's Rebels have you checked out Rebels I have not checked out Rebels as I do not have a TV so I was expecting you were going to be like my Rebels expert as well. Oh, I, no. I, I saw that uh, they had a, um, a comic from Marvel for one of the Rebels characters, and I was yeah. like, oh my god, good for him. Yeah, Kanan. And it's it's funny, I mean, it's the lowest selling of them, but it still sells really well because yeah. it's Star Wars. And I have a feeling people have picked it up going, alright, this is another part of the universe that's being expanded. I like when they do that. I like when they go mm-hmm. in depth. The comic looks good. I think I'm going to start watching that show. Yeah. And and I'm in that boat as well. I think they're in their second season at the moment, or, or so, yeah. nearing the end of it. And, I mean, I want to start watching it. I was just kind of hoping that you were going to go, yeah, man, you should be watching it, because it's like the shiz. And, you know. I feel like you should be watching it, considering that... 
I feel like I should be watching it considering that Clone Wars was really better than it should have been. Yeah. Because did you see the lead-in to Clone Wars, the animated movie? No. That was one I missed. Um, I saw that in theaters with my brother, and we were really excited because we liked the Clone Wars TV sh- the 2D TV show, I should yes. say. Yes, yeah. Which is the one I was mostly talking about in terms of hyping up to uh, Revenge of the Jedi or whatever. And the Clone Wars movie involves Anakin, Obi-Wan, and a rough-and-tumble teenager who later becomes a fleshed-out character. Kind of going like, hey, Jabba the Hutt's French cousin from New Orleans, who might be a gay stereotype, wants us to save his ugly baby. And it's just kind of that for like an hour and a half. Right. Less than an hour and a half. So when they were like, and so when the credits were like, don't worry, this whole thing will be a TV show for the next six years, I kind of just like took a sip from a flask at 14 and was like, great. Right, yeah, so so the jaded uh, Star Wars fan and you already sort of settled into that groove. Mm. Not expecting that we would be getting what we have now where it suddenly there's new promise. Yeah. Do you remember when they were talking about there being a live action show? I do. Was uh, Seth Green going to be on it? Uh, who knows? I mean, there were so many rumors flying around about it. I, I don't think they ever got anywhere, but I mean, I was living still in Australia at the time, and they were going to be filming it there, mm-hmm. and there was all this talk, but we were going to get proper live action, and I, I would have yeah. loved that. Like, you know, as you were saying, that whole idea that with things like television, with the, the pacing and the nature of it, you can really flesh out characters, yeah. give depth to this world where certain things are glossed over. I really wanted that. I mean, I still do. I, I hope that, and and I think Disney, you know, want to make all the money and dominate all the media. So, yeah. you know, it's inevitable that they will get around to it. Especially considering how TV is sort of overtaking film in terms of like popularity yeah and, and what you can do and who you can get to do it now There's yeah people doing television that you never thought would and they're headlining their own show because it's the best role they're gonna get right now yeah which is incredible and i definitely feel like a live action star wars show could work not like one that follows the skywalkers and the whole big battles and everything but yeah. if you just put a tv show set on um, I don't know, Moss, Moss, the Moss Eisley Cantina? Yeah. That's that's an easy show. It's Cheers. That writes itself. <laughs> cheers. <laughs> where everybody chops your arm off. Yeah, yeah. You want to go where everyone chops your arm. Yeah, I- exactly. <laughs> you only go there twice. Maybe thrice, <laughs> depending on your species. Yeah, yeah Star Wars characters. They, they love the uh, arm Everywhere in Star Wars, you go to get your arm chopped off. Yeah. Wasn't that... That was an Easter egg in the... Marvel said for Phase 2 of their films, Yeah, if you watch those, in every movie there's someone getting their arm chopped off, which is supposed to be a tribute to Star Wars. Wow. Yeah, Jeff Johns does the same thing, apparently. Okay. No, that's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to have to look for that. One little tangent I wanted to go on. Yes. Just, you know, because we can, like, thinking about Star Wars means a lot to us, and it certainly does to people of a certain generation, but then, as I'm discovering, all generations... The Muppets is the same, and I was saying yeah. how you had this great Muppets episode with them on, and they would have all these incredible guests. I got introduced to Alice Cooper because yeah. of the Muppets. You know, welcome to my nightmare, and there I was, right there with him. All these these great uh, people, and then I saw this new Muppet show they're doing, and I, I just 
How is it? Died a little How inside. It? Yeah, it's, I... It's terrible. It's like, um, what if 30 Rock was really bad, and instead of hiring actors, they used Muppets? It looked really cynical from, like, the first trailer, and I just yeah. didn't want a part of it. Nah. Especially because, if you... I haven't seen Muppets... Uh, I haven't seen Muppets Most Wanted, but Mupp, the first... Not the first, but the latest Muppets reboot with Jason mm-hmm. Siegel is gold. It's just pure gold all the way through. Right. It's like pure like hope and like there's not a drip of cynicism in it. Yeah. And then this TV show is like, I haven't seen it, but I assume there's a uh, like scene where Kermit's like drunk, or like hunched, like slouched over his desk, complaining about Miss Piggy. Yeah, I, I think there was. I mean, that's essentially what what kind of things were happening. But, I, no, it was terrible. Like, I will watch a really bad show through to the end. I will give a show at least an episode, if not a couple. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm really bad at this, and people will go off me, like, how could you sit to the end of that film or to that show or, yeah. or whatever? And I got 15 minutes into Muppets, maybe not even quite that, and I had to just turn it off. It was like, wow. you're you're abusing my childhood, and, and I can't allow that it's it's unacceptable i mm. just i just turned it off and for everyone that knows me it was like a, a great wow that, i still have yet i think the only thing that's ever happened to me is uh with the cgi beowulf movie right yeah i almost did it for warhorse here in london okay there's just a part this has nothing to do with star wars or television but i just want to everyone possible on the internet to recognize that there's a part in warhorse where everyone's just cheering the kid for having the horse, and then some bells ring, and this one dude who has never had a line in the play before just turns to the audience, looks up, points to the imaginary bell, and goes, Ah, yes, the bell. It means the Kaiser refuses to withdraw his forces from the Netherlands. This means war. And everyone just goes off stage, because it's now World War One. because someone, right. really, someone rang the World War One bell, and it's now time for World War One. Okay, and and so you decided you were like that's that's the final straw for me. The bell oh, oh I, I, I cackled the whole way through. I, I started cackling there, and I didn't stop cackling until the show was over. Well, there you go. See, if you've survived an experience like that, yeah. then you know the holiday special is is still for you. Yeah, you can, you can go back and see that. Considering I, that IFC has done like twenty four hour marathons of R. Kelly's trapped in the closet, I am shocked they have not tried to run the holiday special. Oh, it it's so. Uh, off limits, so forbidden. It's you know, it, it is out there on YouTube. It is available to find via devious the deep means. web, dark web. I would happily pay to you know watch it again or to own it more. Yeah. you know specifically. I mean that that would be great. That's still my hope, but uh, you know it's not a new hope. Oh, oh, oh! oh. Uh, oh. But I I think. That neatly sums up our TV experience. I think so. Such as it is. And, you know, other people go, well, I really know a lot about the TV and I should have been on that show. And perhaps you should have been. Perhaps <laughs> you should uh, try to interact and, uh, you know, comment with us and, yeah. and speak back. If you've seen Rebels, tell me about it. Why seen... should I be watching it? Why should I be watching it? Yeah. I got things to do. Exactly, but I, uh, uh, maybe maybe that's one of them. Yeah, maybe that's one of them. Uh, what do I watch nowadays? I mostly just watch wrestling. Okay, well then, yeah, well, if you like wrestling, why would you like Rebels? If you think wrestling is garbage, why should I replace wrestling in my life with Star Wars Rebels on the TV? 
Answers on a postcard. Answers on a postcard to 6969. Check out these Guns Avenue. New Jersey. New Jersey. 2315. That's my address. I feel like that is. Yeah. yeah. I, it, it, it came too easily to you. 6969, so, show off these Guns Avenue. So, thank you again for listening to us, and hopefully you're going to enjoy the next segment. Hey, Nani Nani. James and Greg and Matt for joining me this week and thank you all for listening we've been having so much fun with this podcast I hope you can tell how much we're just absolutely loving it and I hope that you guys contribute to it so please tweet at us at forceghostc2c please email us forceghostc2c at gmail.com please call our hotline 973-913-4627 and we have a very special announcement involving the voicemail we're going to keep the voicemail going after the podcast ends. I want everyone listening to call in as you're leaving the theater from seeing The Force Awakens to talk to us about it. I'll remind you guys each week that we're going to be doing this, but I think it'll be really cool to maybe a week or so after the movie comes out to play everybody's reactions, the Multiversity staff and the fans. So please do that, and please check out multiversitycomics.com where all of us are involved in a variety of other things, be it podcasts or articles or whatever. So until next time, we are going to end with one voicemail that we got on the voicemail box this week, and until we speak again, may the force be with you. Uh, hi, my name is Bill, and I was calling in to tell a story about, uh, you know, growing up with Star Wars. Okay, so growing up, we, you know, just like any normal household, we knew about Star Wars, but we weren't super into Star Wars, so, like, I'd seen the movies, you know, kind of like the idea of it, but, you know, it wasn't like a diehard fan or anything, and then when the first episode came out, you know, it was 10, uh, you know, I saw it, and then, you know, it was, you know, cool, you know, Episode two, you know, I was kind of into it, but I guess what it really kind of clicked for me was when episode three came out, and that's my favorite, which I realize is not everyone's favorite, but that's my favorite. I saw that four times in theaters, like that was kind of the point. Of like, oh man, like this is actually a cool thing, and which is funny because it didn't happen on the previous movies. It was episode three that took it for the for me to click. But anyway, so uh, I guess my my real connection with Star Wars growing up is kind of a, a weird, unique way, I guess. But uh, my mom was pretty protective as far as like us allowing or allowing her, her kids to like see things and experience things. So she really didn't like how in episode one how demonic looking Darth Maul was. And so I remember we had bought this beach towel that had like Darth Maul's face on it, which is like five feet tall. You know, it's this massive face of Darth Maul, but of course it's like red black with the horns. And so my mom felt really uncomfortable about it. So she asked me to go over the towel of like
with the, the horns on on his head to, like, go over with a Sharpie and, like, blot it out. So it was just, like, just kind of a scary-looking guy, but not really demonic-looking, I guess. Which, like, of course, doesn't really do anything. Like, you could still, like, if you put Sharpie on a towel, like, you could still see what's under it. So, like, we, we did that. And then also, Taco Bell was having this, like, promotion thing in the first episode came out of, um, I found mean, these four posters that if you put them side by side in the right order, they would, it was like a collage that kind of blended into, it was like a big picture. So, uh, we had gotten three of them and, um, you know, we still have them and you know, they're hanging over in my, in my bedroom. But we had three of them on the wall, but we didn't get the fourth one because Darth Maul was kind of the main focus on the last picture. And my mom felt really uncomfortable again about Darth Maul. So we weren't allowed to get that, <laughs> that poster. But, uh, so I guess my connection with Star Wars was always kind of like apprehensive. Like, I like the idea, but in the back of my mind, I knew that my mom didn't like certain aspects of it. So I was like, well, I guess I can't like it. And then when I grew up, I was like, okay, that's kind of silly. This is kind of a cool thing, I guess. So, uh, good luck talking about that and, uh, keep up the good work. <laughs>